I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Andrew G. Cooper is a Canadian playwright, director, and puppeteer. In this conversation, we talk about working on Alberta theatre projects, The Jungle Book, creating a new stage production of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, how Calgary has a thriving puppetry community, and much more. Here's our conversation. Andrew, uh, you were just doing The Jungle Book? That's right, at ATP. Okay, tell tell me about tell me about that experience. How how was how was doing the Jungle Book? It was a very upsy downsy sort of show. From my point of view, uh, the oh, in terms of the design and the bill, puppets, which was one of my primary roles, was great, very fulfilling, and the team that built the puppets did such an amazing job. The performers that we had were fantastic and did excellent work as a whole, which, and this is something maybe we could speak to a lot, um, cause I have strong feelings about new work in Canada as a whole, the, I think the production wasn't ready for the state. It wasn't ready for a premiere in terms of the, the script. Um, some of the other design elements were a little last minute and at no fault to the other designers. Mm. Um, and we didn't quite. I think we didn't quite get where the show could have been by opening night. The other thing, which this was public news, so we can't talk about it, but the artistic and executive director, who was also the director and the playwright of the show, was fired during our tech week. So that was a huge blow to the entire team. And up until that point, things were a little bumpy. After that point, things were great. But then we only had three days to open the show and really rejig it. So yeah. it was uh, very stressful in the moment. In the end, the, there are parts of the production that are beautiful and then I think really sore. And there are other parts that just needed more time and more work, more dramaturgy, more rehearsal, more tech, kind of everything. So it was a really wild experience yeah. as a whole. It's not every day that something as dramatic as your director leaving the show, that you know, doesn't happen very often. So yeah, it's a learning experience for a lot of people. Um, I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, having strong feelings about about theater in Canada and the way that we make it. Um, I'm going to I'm going to run a scenario by you because I think yes. it's sort of like at the heart of what may be the problem. Um, all of our organizations are at the mercy of granting organizations mm-hmm. and sponsorship, but mostly grants. Yeah. Um, and what we tend to do is we tend to get uh, one grant for writing, one grant for workshopping, and one grant for performance. Yeah, if we're lucky, getting you know that that's yeah, but, but that's pretty typical. I agree. And so, what if we look at shows that that are created sort of in a more capitalist system? Say, for example, a lot of the Broadway shows, 
a lot of them go through years and years of workshop and rewrite and workshop and rewrite and re- workshop and, re- and then out of town pro- tryouts and they do yes. this in this city and that city. Yes. Then they do. Yes, exactly. Whereas we do just the sort of the three, the, you know, grant for, for writing, grant for, for workshop and grant for production. And uh, we also have the issue where we kind of just forget about the work that we've done once we've done it. Like, yeah, once there's a premiere, you're like, wait, I yeah. think I read a stat and I'm going to throw the number and this mm. is, you know, a generalization, but it was something like 90% of premiered works in Canada don't get a second production. Yeah. That is crazy. Like it is put in crazy. Years of work. Yeah. One production runs for three weeks and that's it, which is, yeah. It's also, I mean, part of that I think is because a lot of, a lot of, a lot of theaters prioritize uh, the premiere. Yes. They want to be the premiere production of a work. And then after that, who cares? Um, and we just don't have a system where a work can live on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. There is one thing that I saw. This was actually coming from the fringe world, but I saw some sort of mid-sized companies trying. It's called a rolling world premiere, which is essentially... It's one step up from a co-pro. So usually in a co-pro, it's like it premieres in one place and then it also goes somewhere like yeah. uh, Forgiveness is at Arts Club and Theatre Calgary this year. Right. So they rehearse, they do the show there, then they come here in Calgary and they do. But a rolling world premiere is like a few more stops on that train. The same production does hit all of these cities and then they're all called world premieres, even though really one city premiered it. Yeah. But it just addresses that problem where you're like, oh, everyone wants to claim the premiere. They don't want to just claim this as a second or third production. What could be a very great work? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, that's something that's happening. But what I think misses from that model is the like the workshopping and rehearsing between each of those. Because as you said, in a more commercial model, the show gets better and better every time. Well, hopefully that's right. it changes and hopefully it's improving every Yes. Time. Yes. But that's the idea that every time you do it for a different audience, you learn new things, you tweak things, you improve it. And yeah, and th- those sort of like long cycles don't often happen here in yeah. Canadian theater. We just don't, I mean, part of the problem, I think, is that we just don't have the stages for work to live for a long period of time. All of the theaters that we have are, they have a season and a show can only run for so long before it has to clear out. Yeah, another little... show is coming on. Yeah, yeah. That's this right. like whole regional theater season model. Yeah, especially in Western Canada. Yeah, there's so few companies that are doing like something that sits down and stays for a while. Yeah, I think, I mean, as I was saying here, the only companies that kind of do that are like the big dinner theaters. They'll run right. shows sometimes for an entire month or sometimes two months. And then in Toronto, of course, there's there's things like Mervish, but but yeah, they're the like, only ones that do that. They're the only ones and they're, and they don't do it very often. Like usually they're kind of a roadhouse. A show comes in on tour, it performs for a month and then it yeah. goes. Um, and occasionally they mount their own productions, which can sit down for a few months to a year or maybe more if they're lucky. But it just doesn't happen in Canada the way it does in the States. Yeah. And then the other way to do it would be just getting more and more productions of the same thing. Yes. Yeah. If only, if only theaters could sort of just allow themselves to maybe not only do world premieres, maybe a show could live on. A show like Kim's Convenience, for example, which yes. started at the Fringe and exactly. had a life, it toured and toured and toured, and then became a TV show. Like that's that something just that came to Calgary again, and I'm like, yay, more original Canadian work, and it doesn't have to be a world premiere. Every time that show comes up, I'm like, yes, okay, good. The TV show, as you said, probably helped a lot. I'm sure the, the TV show helped a lot, but you know, I, I saw that show at its at its original run in the Fringe, and it was magic then. Oh, like, like, you know, very few people have the experience of of seeing a show, and when that show ends, you just feel it in the audience that it's a genuine standing ovation that's about to happen. Not the kind of a yeah. standing ovation where like yeah. people sort of start to stand up because they kind of feel like they have to, and then people go, oh, "Well, they're standing. I guess we're supposed to stand." And then and then I'm usually sitting there like, now I can't even see the curtain call. So I have yes. to stand because everyone yes. in front of me is. That's exactly right. Yeah, I know. This was a show where it ended and just everybody leapt to their feet. And that's like a really genuine thing. So that's how magic that show was. I'm glad we're taking right into this. To bring it back to what happened on Jungle Book, I think that what happened was, you know, you program a season 
Mm-hmm. You have to, as you said, like there's all these slots that you have to fill mm. and you're on this timeline and you have to hit these deadlines. So I think that, yeah, the, the, I, the, the company that I run, Jupiter Theater, doesn't run on the whole season thing that most, as you said, like these kind of regional companies that depend on their grants and their sponsorship and their ticket sales, like they, they have a model they have to stick in. And I think that can stifle the process very often because it, it's more about product than the process, unfortunately, because they have to do their five shows every year or, mm. or whatever amount it is. And, and some companies pull it off as per usual. Sometimes you're like, oh, well, there was two good shows in that season and three that were whatever. So, so yeah, it's kind of just a product of what what the landscape looks like right now. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of amazing how how quickly we sort of fell back into the status quo after like two, three years of, of COVID. Oh, yeah. Not I was live <laughs> performance. And then, you know, we had the opportunity where we could like reinvent everything. And then so many theaters were like, you know, we do so much important work. Yeah, you know, during the COVID, they're like important work and, you know, the heart of Canada. And then they start up again. They're like, here's our production of Greece. Yeah. And they're like, here's our six show season as we were yes. having exactly before. Yes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I was one of those people. I was, I was optimistic. Things are going to change and some things are changing, which is nice, but not nearly as much as I was hoping is yeah. changing in the post pandemic world. So it's still, it's still a journey that we're on, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I would be, my nerd heart would be remiss if I didn't speak to you about a very important topic and that's Raggle Rock. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, I, as many people did, I grew up with Sesame Street and then the mm-hmm. Muppet Show and then Fra- Fraggle Rock. That was like the, sort of like the, 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 the toddler childhood, like early teens. That was like yeah, the, yeah. the progression. I read with you. And um, as somebody who grew up with 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 Fraggle Rock, what was it like to work on like the new show? It's I I still can't really put it into words. It's truly magical in like a real real sense of it. I have we can now talk about uh, season two was just announced a couple weeks ago after uh, they won an Emmy for the first season. So I still have days where I'm on set and I just look around. And go, wow! I am, I am in Fraggle Rock right now. Like these sets, which just won an Emmy, they're huge. They're, there's like a waterfall that's like twenty feet tall, and these sets, it's like a three sixty. They're just incredible, and and the people are all amazing. It's very, really the most wonderful production I've ever had the chance to work on. It just, yeah, I love it. It's so great. I do have to say that the first season was one of the worst kept secrets in Canada. <laughs> I know yes. everyone in Calgary knew everybody, everybody, the puppet community. Everybody who did any puppetry in Canada was suddenly in Calgary, and you're like, I wonder what's going on. Mm. That's exactly every yeah. Well, we had a big migration of like the Toronto area artists. Yeah. Every like all the local people here knew about it. It just yeah, and we're like yeah. yeah, we're working on something. We just can't say what, so everyone would know what you meant. Yes, of course they did. Of course they did. Um, so did you also you also grew up with like the Sesame Street Muppet Show, Fraggle Rock? And... Yeah, 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 yeah. Fraggle Rock was just a, a little bit before my time, but I did watch it. But my older sisters watched it regularly as it was coming out, and then we had all the Muppet movies, mm. definitely Sesame Street. So my mom, funnily enough, I was a big Muppet fan. She hosted a puppet show on local TV when we lived in Vernon, British Columbia, where I was born. And all of my siblings were like dressed up in animal costumes or would help her puppeteer. So she had her own puppet show that was very much in the Muppet style and inspired by the Muppet. Um, so I think that puppetry was really in my family and like a really concrete way for a really long time. Yeah. So when she figured out, found out about Fraggle Rock, she just was as excited as I was because she <laughs> just watched them for so, so long. I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, when did you start? I mean, aside from what your mother was doing, when did you start like taking on like puppetry and working with that? I got into puppetry as an as a stage actor. So I worked with a company in Kamloops, BC, where I went to school called Project X Theater. It was a rep outdoor summer theater company. So they originally would do one Shakespeare production and and pair it with a kind of a family production, and then it eventually went more into like a, a TYA production paired with a kind of general audience production. 
because there was a lot of family shows and ad- adaptations of literature, we did a lot of shows. So as a performer, I was learning the skills of puppetry just to be in these shows. And I was doing it so much that I eventually thought, oh, I should go get some real puppetry training. So I did the BAMP intensive with the old trouts from Calgary. And that was my first real exposure. It was three weeks of puppetry training at the BAMP Center, which was amazing. And that program, it ran any, every other year for probably a decade. And I don't think it's running anymore. Or I would tell everyone to go do it because it was amazing and life-changing. Mm. But after that, I just got hooked. And I created my own puppet show, sort of a device theater show that was an adaptation of a very dark Grimm's fairy tale. We did a five-city fringe tour of that and got rave reviews. And now I just use puppetry in most of my work. Or not most, but a lot. Mm. I also have a dance background. So I use a lot of movement, dance, puppetry, stage combat, like a lot of just physical vocabulary in the shows that I built. So they're very kinetic and very physical. That's that sort of is like a cornerstone of what I work is as a director. So puppetry already fit so well into the kind of work I was attracted to anyways. And now I'm doing a lot of mask puppet work and and doing work like the Jungle Book where just go into a big theater. They need a puppet director or a designer. And I, I work with actors who mm. aren't puppeteers as well as bring in puppeteers and, and do coaching and those sort of things. So yeah, puppetry slowly, I guess it was probably... 2016 when I did that intensive. So for the last six years, it's been puppet, puppet, puppets for me. Hmm. What was your, I mean, you mentioned your mom uh, doing like children's t- television. What was your theater origin story? What drew you to the theater? Yeah, so I I remember seeing some plays and such when I, when I was young. What really got me into it, and I, I grew up in a certain sect of Christianity. I grew up Mormon. So there was always like, we would like put on shows and like all these different things. But when I was in high school, a friend of mine whose mom ran the, one of the local dance studios was like, oh, you like to move and you should come and take some hip hop classes. And then that same friend, after I was like, sure, I'll try it, was like, oh, we need more guys in musical theater. So of course, I was like, sure, I'll take this musical theater class. And there is and still is like a shortage of, of male roles. Like in in the education system, I find once you get into the professional world, they're like, oh yeah, of course, we have a zillion women and only two roles for women, so yeah, problem switches. But yeah, but in high school, they were like, we need more guys to come and take musical theater. So we did um, West Side Story was my first play ever, and I was just completely hooked after that. So I did another year of that for my twelve grade twelve year, and then I wanted to go to school, so I got my bachelor's degree, and I just kept going and going. And it was a performer for um, through through my undergrad. I was focusing on performance and then coming out of school. And then I realized, oh, no one's going to hire me just because I'm some young kid just out of school. So I just started making my own work. And I'd already been writing a lot of other things. So I started writing and producing and directing. And I very quickly realized that I have a much stronger affinity, stronger love for that sort of work. And I was like, oh, everyone is a better performer than I am. I should focus on the things that I can excel at, and that is, is writing and directing. So I'm glad that I had that realization. And I still perform sometimes. I, like, I'm doing Fraggle Rock, so it's not like I never, ever perform. But but in the theater world, I'm mostly a director and a writer now. Uh, do you miss it? Oh, yeah, I love the stage. And, <laughs> and I, I also did improv for a long time. Uh, and I did. I started an improv comedy troupe in Kamloops, and then when I came out to Calgary, the, the famous Loose Moose is here. So I had right. done that a few times, and I'm like, oh, I just love. Oh, and speaking of Kim's Convenient, the first time I went to Loose Moose, there was this. I think it was like the 40th anniversary, and a whole bunch of Loose Mooses came back, including Andrew Fung. So right. I do comedy with Andrew Fung, and nice. I, was, I was just, this is amazing. Nice. So that was just like such a fun and exciting experience. Um, so yeah, every once in a while I go, yeah, I should get back on stage. But I do this thing as, <laughs> as a, as a theater person that like when I'm directing, I'm like, oh, I love directing. And then at the end of the project, I'm like, uh, directing, like the next time I want to do, I want to be a writer and then I'll do that. And I'm like, oh, now I miss performing. And I, like, I keep switching these hats. So it's nice that I can do all these different things because then I, I never get kind of like bored. I can always switch it up and try something else. That's good. Um, you mentioned fringe. Um, do you find, cause. I, fringes, it, depending on every city, is different. So when you're traveling with fringes, 
the shows, you know, you, you learn how to adapt to an audience really quickly. Yeah. Uh, when you took your show to the Fringe Festivals, which cities did you do? We did just Western Canada. So we did Winnipeg, Regina. I did the show in Calgary, but it wasn't technically part of the Fringe. Then we did Vancouver and Victoria. So we didn't do Edmonton, but I've been to the Edmonton Fringe a zillion times. Just that show we didn't take. There's a, there's a company that I, I did uh, some, some of the Western Fringes like 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a company that they were originally from the States and now they're based in Vancouver um, called the Wonderheads. And they- Oh, I love them. Yeah, they're, they're so, so amazing. Right. They're so amazing. <laughs> I've been a fan ever since I saw their show Moon. Um, and, uh, you know, we, they, at one point they were like talking about, well, we only ever start, start, start in Winnipeg and we go West and we were like, you know, we're a Toronto group. We're like, why do you, why would you not come to Toronto? And, mm-hmm. and they said something and I, I think, I still think they're right. And it's because they, they'd heard that Toronto was hostile to out of town performers. Oh, interesting. And although I wouldn't call it hostile. It's not exactly friendly. There are other cities okay. where people come from out of town. And everybody's like, "Have you heard of this show from Camelopes? You gotta yeah, exactly. see it." And yeah, yeah, yeah. but in Toronto, they're like, "Shows from out of town. We're just looking for the next uh, show from here that we can." You yeah, know, we want the next time's convenience or whatever. Exactly, exactly. But apparently, it can only come from here, and so that's sort of like, and it's not the fringe that does that. Sort of the media does it. The audience sort of follows that. It's so it's it's kind of uh, too bad because I know that. I knew that I knew that the Wonderhood the Wonderheads work would like explode when people yeah. saw it. Yeah. It's funny, I also have not been out to the Toronto Fringe, but I've never had a strong desire to because I'm right. like, well, if I'm doing Edmonton, Winnipeg, Vancouver, I'm like, those are the fringe capitals. We were talking earlier about the kind of differences between yeah, kind of Canada and the US. And the fringe circuit is something that Canada does yes. so, so well. I love Canadian fringes. I've done the chores a few, three or four times now. And it's just, yeah, like you said, every city's a little different, but you get to know kind of the differences of each city once you go mm-hmm. back. And and then they get, they start to know your work if you're a returning yeah. artist. And it just, it's such a great place to try new work. And that's somewhere where new work, I think, can really thrive because it yeah. is inherently commercial. And as a whole, there is, there's a lot of things about capitalism that I don't like. Yeah. But the, the, the idea that a show will succeed if it is good enough to like if yes. it sell enough tickets, whatever good enough means, but yeah, makes artists I think work hard to create good art, whatever good is entertaining or thoughtful, mm-hmm. whatever they're going for. But if word of mouth goes, yeah, then the, then a show can soar, and and the fringe is where that can happen. It, it's just like the the free market of theater, and I love it. It really is. I think that that's a great that's a great sort of a way to speak about it is the the sort of like the free market of, of of theater because you know you are like you're 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 out there pushing your show you're doing all this work but you also as a performer learn so much about your show yeah yeah yeah, yeah. even between yeah. cities it can change because you're like absolutely oh. you know I did six shows in Winnipeg and I'm like there's a few little things that are not landing. Let's just switch those up when we get to Edmonton. You know, like you can't yeah. make changes on the go. This yeah. whole changing of new work we were talking before, you can do that in one tour over one summer. And then you have a show yeah. that's so well refined because you've done a hundred performances or something, you know. Yeah. And what's awesome about that about that is the next time you do that show, like I, I've show that I've taken around is called uh, The Last Man on Earth. It's a, uh, a play in the style of silent film with Keystone mm-hmm. Theater. And we would, the first time we did it, we did it at, at a festival of clowns, even though we're not technically clowns, but we did it there. And then we sort of reworked it after that. And then we did a fringe tour. And every time we do it again, we can sort of come back and revisit it. And like, what did yeah. we learn from the last time? What did we learn from the last time? And to do that between fringes, you can have a show that is so tight and so different once it gets to Vancouver, as opposed to when you started out. Yes. Yeah. And which is nice. I like sometimes starting with some some smaller shows. I think that we started in Regina of all places, but mm-hmm. I like starting with the small fringes like Regina, Calgary, because it's tryouts, mm-hmm. you know, and you get to yeah. get it under your skin. So by the time we got to Vancouver and Victoria, we were getting five star reviews because we had yeah. kind of worked our way up and we were really hitting our stride. Yeah. So there's something beautiful seeing your show evolve over one yeah. summer as well. It's I mean, you're talking about not not having a desire to go to Toronto. If you're starting in Winnipeg. And you know, like Winnipeg is like the second biggest fringe in Canada. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a big one. 
it's a big win. And then Edmonton. So if you're doing those and that's your experience at Fringe, uh, I know people were like, I can't wait to get to Toronto. It must be huge. And I'm like, you're going to be so disappointed. No. <laughs> it's not anything <laughs> yeah. like that at all. It's not anything like that at all. No, Calgary's is tiny as well. I think it's because yeah. we're so close to Edmonton. Everyone's like, well, may as well go to Edmonton. It's like, yeah. It's Fringes. I think people, like, if you were doing a Fringe tour, that's why you would go to Calgary. Like, because you have... Like the opportunity, you start at Winnipeg, and then you have the time in between. You're like, I will go to you made, Saskatoon, yeah. or I will go to Calgary, or whichever one. You go to one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a funny thing, but uh, yeah, I, I love that. And when Fringes started coming back, I was like, now Feeder is back in Canada. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this, is, this, this past summer, although Fringe felt weird this past year, um, in, in Toronto, it was not quite back. You know, we still had like, you had the, the dichotomy of like masks were mandatory, but after a while, the staff was a little tired of fighting with some people. And right. so there's like things get all of that sort of thing. And I would know, I know people who are on the tour and you'd be like, okay, so they've ha- they're having to cancel shows cause they've got COVID. It's like, hopefully we will have a, a, a regular fringe again soon. 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 I want to talk about uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yes. I'm tell me about tell me about that production. Because, you know, Frankenstein is, I mean, it, some people, when they think of, of Frankenstein, they think of the silent movie. Yeah. Think of, uh, uh, you know, the green guy. We think he's green, but whatever. It's black Boris and white. Karloff. Barlow, Boris Karloff. And, you know, we that's how we think of, of the story, but it's so much more than just that. So... Tell me about what you love about Frankenstein and, and and about this production that you're working on. Yeah, so I read Frankenstein, I think in my like introductory to English class in my first year as an undergraduate student, and I just fell in love with it immediately. I've always loved monster fiction anyways, and, and this is like early, early sci-fi, and I love early sci-fi. Um, yeah, there, and there's just something that's so beautiful beautiful and tragic about this story and as you said yes a lot of people think of this sort of like guttural monosyllabic like non-speaking person but but the beauty i think of frankenstein is how eloquent he becomes the creature becomes this persuasive and eloquent force and it's ah, it's just such a beautiful story it's so human which i love and really at its heart for me at least it's the themes of of being an outcast, of trying to find your place, of not fitting in, and of how we treat people who are others. And those themes, every time I do the show, I'm like, oh, this show is for today because of the same theme. The very first kind of workshop production I did in Camworks was right during the, the wave of Me Too, like the first big wave of Me Too. And I was like, mm. this story is so relevant right now. And then... We're, we're getting ready to do it again. We did another workshop last October. Um, and then our, our big premiere is coming up this upcoming March. So we're going to be doing it with Jupiter Theater here in Calgary. And and coming out of COVID and all of the, the big waves that have been happening with Black Lives Matter and the Indigenous movements. And I, I just think, oh, yes, this is the play for our time. And it just keeps happening, which tells me that, oh, these themes are universal that yeah unfortunately this story of how we treat others and people being outcasts and and being others that that's not going away so mm. it's, it's unfortunate but it's still relevant and it was relevant because it's 200 years old so yeah i'll probably just like shakespeare probably not going to go anywhere these these themes are are kind of universal themes of the human condition so so that draws me to it and then in terms of production we mentioned before how I love movement and puppetry and and all those sort of things. So the production itself has a lot of movement. The creature doesn't speak a lot and learns to speak over the first act of the show. So there's a lot of nonverbal uh, nonverbal acting happening and and beautiful movement. There's puppetry moments. There's a lot of mask moments. The supernatural elements from the novel I've keyed in on, especially the kind of like ghosts and the the haunting and, and Victor Frankenstein's disintegrating psychology so using masks as metaphor so there's elements of dance movement mask puppetry shadows so all the the things that i said i i often use as trademarks in my show so it's highly visual highly spectacle and i find that these these amazing classic 
stories, and, and especially stories that lean into sci-fi, supernatural, or fantasy, they really lend to this very highly visual style that I'm drawn to. So something I've been trying to do, Jupiter Theater especially, is to get more speculative speculative fiction on stage. I'm constantly advocating that we need more sci-fi fantasy on stage because I love those things and I just think that the liveness of those can be so unique and, and so thrilling. So that that's what I'm really excited about with this production that's coming up in March. And I, yeah, we're, we're starting soon and I just keep getting fired up about what's what's going to happen in 2023. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's I've thought for a while, there's not enough genre on our stages. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a time where that, that was where horror happened. If there was, you, you know, you, there were Dracula, Frankenstein, the, 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 you know, the Jekyll and Hyde, these were all like plays that happened on stages and terrified people at the time. Yeah. Um, and then at a certain point we just decided, we decided that we just don't do that anymore. Our theaters are for more, you know, we like a living room. We like, uh, you know, yeah, like bizarre. Yeah. So now we just sort of stopped doing that. And yet there's nothing more visceral than seeing a play in a theater and see being afraid yeah. in a theater. Oh, it's it's amazing. So Calgary's very blessed. They do have a genre theater vertigo, which their their mandate is around mysteries. But the last artistic director who has just left, Craig Hall, really was pushing for thrillers as well mm -hmm. as mysteries. They're very, very similar. So I've seen some amazing thrillers on stage at Vertigo. I just saw Stephen King's Misery, and it was fantastic. It was just, so, I was like, I couldn't believe what they were doing, like sledgehammers, right. breaking people's legs, torturing people on stage. And being in the audience and feeling the, the jump scares and feeling people's kind of horror, I, I just, yeah, like you said, it's just so fun. It's so amazing being in a communal space to, to yeah. get that out. And I constantly want more of that. So, yeah, that's sort of what I'm chasing right now. I remember being, you know, in my day job, I work with people who are not theater people. And I was right. having a conversation with, with someone who just, is, they, they didn't really get theater. Why theater? Why not just movies? Um, and I I tried to explain, and talks about, you know, how violence on stage is more visceral on stage mm -hmm. than in a movie. Um, and you can sort of see it where, you know, in a show... If somebody gets slapped, that ripples through the entire audience. And if it yeah. happens in a movie, people are just like, eh. Yeah. That like, doesn't have the same impact, right? Totally. Um, I did a production of the Scottish play years ago where the murderers um, that came to to kill Macduff's family, um, Lady Macduff had a baby. And so we took the baby from her. We acted like it was going to be fine. Right. And then after her son got killed, we sort of like turned the neck. And there was a little piece of balsa wood in there. So it like just the slightest snap. And the way the audience just sort of like entirely like as a as a entity recoils from that, you can't yeah. just that in in itself, you wonder why, like, why are we not putting more of this like yes. stuff, this visceral stuff on our stages if the audience is gonna like buy into it so much? Yeah, I love that. I there is a moment in Frankenstein from from the novel where the young son, who I think is like 10 in the novel, gets murdered, gets strangled by the creature. And in our workshop productions, we, we typically had a 10-year-old play that role. And just the way that people react to a child being violently yes. murdered, it's so macabre, but it's so delightful like it's such a visceral reaction and i think people love that because i mean because of the safety of theater that you can go yes. feel this huge emotion but but you do know that there's safety but it, it's different as you said in in a film there's so much distance you're like oh i can feel that and that's terrible but when there's a living breathing yes. 10 year old mm -hmm. in danger right there yeah there's yeah. something special about that kind of feeling that happens between people in a space. Absolutely. There's that moment of like, I, I really think it's because, you know, on stage, it's, there is that distance or sorry, in, in film, there is that dis distance, you know, you see the screen, it's not really happening. Um, but something about having somebody who's breathing, who might be sweating, 
you know, you you just they, you buy into it so much more in in the theater. And I wish, I kind of think that if 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 we give more people that experience in the theater, I think we would see an influx of audiences to our yes. theaters. No, exactly. It's not just stuffy plays in a living room or or great plays in a living room. I just saw Theater yeah. Calgary's um, The Importance of Being Earnest. I love the play. The production yeah. was fantastic. It stills funny. They did a really great job. And I was like, you know what? Great night out of the theater. There's nothing wrong, you know, with these comedies. But that's not the kind of shows that I produce personally. And I can enjoy yeah. them. But but I think we would get different people coming to the theater with these very different kinds of productions. Yeah, that's something absolutely. we definitely need in Canada is we need new, younger, different audiences watching live theater. If, that's if live the thing. theater is going to continue. That's the thing. We we always have all these conversations. There's the hand wringing of like, where is our audience going? You know, where's right. the audience going? And you have to look at what you're putting on the stage That's as it. the as the answer. Because if you're not giving something that like young people want to see or like that that audiences want to see, they're just not gonna come. It's easier for them to stay home and see what's on Netflix or yeah. Hulu or whatever services they have. You have to give them something exciting to bring them out that they can only see there. Yeah, and so much of the conversation about audiences is focused on marketing. But as we were just discussing, audiences is about programming. Like yeah. whoever, what what you choose to put on the stage is going to reflect who's coming to see it, which is why there's such a great resurgence right now of diversity in theater. Mm-hmm. Like people of other cultures writing or directing or producing work and that inherently will bring different sort of peoples because other people want to see those stories. It's not yeah. just for, for me as a white male presenting person, like I like certain things, but other people who don't typically go to the theater. And this is one of the, the things about The Jungle Book that I actually really love is the original vision for this show was to really reclaim it from a South Asian perspective. And the, the moments that are about South Asian culture that I really didn't know much about mm. coming in before coming into the process. They're beautiful. And I think more people should be witnessing these sort of acts on stage. And I hope that a lot of South Asian people in Calgary are going to see this because there are moments that are so lovely in the show. And, mm. and that's something that I was excited about and, and needs to happen more. And one of the elements of the show that I think needs more workshopping and more time and, and those sort of things. It's lovely seeing that some of these changes, as we discussed, are starting to happen and need to happen faster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the, the advantage to the stoppage of theater was, in theory, the theaters could have the conversations that they would had been putting off because they were in a cycle of production. You yeah. can't have important conversations about diversity, about about you know who's on the stage, who do you serve, that sort of thing, uh, if you're just like always in the yeah, cycle of production. Crank it up. That's right. Um, so it's great. Those conversations were had. Um, but, you know, I'm looking around at some theater companies being like, do you remember we had that conversation? Do you, do you remember? Because I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I Another aspect of, of this kind of different, what makes, I think, theater unique and is the things that you can't see on film. And one of those for me is the puppets. And this is the reason why I love puppetry so much is because as you were, we were saying about the danger of like, oh, there's a living, breathing, sweating human on danger on stage. I think there's something really magical about when people really get puppets and Mm -hmm. they start to go, oh, that is a living, breathing, sweating thing, even though it's not. Yeah. But when people really buy in, I think that the trick of theater is imagination. This, yeah. So this is my thesis I'm going to stand on that. Yeah. It's a shared imaginative space between the actors and the audience. Everyone knows it's not real. Whereas film often, not always, but most of the time in film, you're, you're going for realism, even if it's yes. superheroes, blah, blah, blah. but, but the lens, you're trying to find a realistic format. Mm-hmm. But I think in theater, or at least what's interesting for me is, is finding this imaginative space where we both know it's not real, but we buy in anyways. Yeah, and puppets take that and they turn it up to 10 because you're like, yeah. this is just wood and cloth and paint. You definitely for sure know this isn't real. Yeah. But once you start to buy in and care about it, you can just, you can soar. You can run on this journey. You can really go to new heights. Mm-hmm. And it allows, I also love that puppets can do things that humans can't. So in the, in the little, as an example, 
in this fringe show that I said, this dark fairy tale show, The Robber Bridegroom, one of the reasons why we wanted to use puppets originally was we wanted to find a story that we do things that humans can. So we had this scene where this little girl gets dismembered, like chopped up and put into a soup pot, which is what happens in brothers' fairy tales because they're actually very dark. So for a puppet, you spend the first half of the show getting them to love this character. And then in the finale, this terrible guy murders her and literally rips her limbs up and cuts her right. on stage. That there's something that that chorus, yes, we wouldn't be able to murder someone on stage. And you could maybe do tricks, but not to the level we did it. We really pushed it far. And then I'm like, yes, that's why puppets are so great. You get people to buy in and then you can do something that that a human would never be able to do. And I, I just love those moments so much. Yeah. That suspension of disbelief is a magical thing about theater because you can, I mean, it's amazing. You can be like, all right, here we are on stage. And then if I turn the lights blue and I say we're all underwater, everybody just like accepts, okay, we're underwater. Yep. Nobody, like, well, the special effects weren't that great. Like they just, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. We're underwater, you know? And I mean, that goes all the way back to Greek and Shakespeare, where you're just like, ah, oh, here is the place that we are at. And everyone's like, cool, great. We know yeah. where we are. I kind of I kind of always appreciate that about Shakespeare, because he'll walk into the room and just be like, now we are in space. And the audience is like, yeah, okay, we're in space. Okay, we are space. Um, the the thing about puppets is I, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, you know, occasionally like these clips come up of like uh, Muppets with people back in the day, you know, like, yeah. like especially the children. And uh, years ago, I was doing uh, uh, at at uh, park. There was like there's a beloved uh, char- character on a theater called Pokeroo. It's like this weird thing, and I was doing that for the summer. But we were rehearsing outdoors, and so we didn't have the full outfit on. We just had the head. <laughs> yeah. And somebody was. We didn't know that anybody was bringing their kids in, but some one employee brought their their child in. Going by on some golf cart, sees Pokeroo and freaks out and starts running out. We're thinking. We don't have the body. We just have the head. What do we do? The child didn't care. Right. They just saw, they saw and they the knew head. and they believe That's it. Right. That's right. Yeah. And you see that with like these these clips of like Kermit and the little girl trying to do her ABCs but saying, saying Cookie Monster. Like Jim Henson is kneeling at her feet. Yes. Right there. And, and she can see him even though the camera can and we as the audience can. Yes. Those people can for sure see it. But she ignores it entirely. Yeah. She's just like, I am just talking to, to Kermit. And it's amazing that kids do that. And I think adults do that too. Anytime I've ever seen uh, uh, any adult interacting with the Muppets, they just, they they don't care about these people. They just, they believe. Yeah. 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 That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And I see that. I'm very fortunate. I do see that work a lot that you're like, oh, it's so easy to just go, that character is a lie. And is real, and you just you erase everything else. Yeah, and that's that's one of the beauties of good puppetry. That event, the audience will, and on stage where puppeteers are almost always in full view, the audience will just forget. No, just see yeah. this this being breathing on stage and forget about the rest. That, but yeah, there's magic in that. I, yeah, there was a there's sort of like an, a, an adult version of the Muppets that does like this improv show. They travel around. I saw it. Uh, they came to Toronto and they, like, they just, there's just on stage, they just have them up, but there's nothing blocking. Yeah, I've them. done, they do have a screen, they do have a screen where you can, like, choose to just watch them up, but it's just incredible just to watch, like, how quickly you just go, there's a person there, but I don't care, I'm just going to watch them up. Yep. Because it's, it's a lot. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. It's a magic trick. It, and yeah, that's it why is. I think it's so wonderful to do for the theater. I remember when I was performing Pokeroo because he's just like this big thing. He's like you wear this, you wear this, this, this thing. It sits here, but the head's yeah. like way up here. Right. Um, and I remember the first time I put that on, uh, I got the first note, and it was like, "So you're doing a lot with your body, but that doesn't matter because the head is dead." Yeah, of course. Um, it's you have to move around, and of course, what that meant in that was that I have to like move my entire torso around to get the head moving but if i didn't do that there was no life in it yeah and it's amazing how quickly that will kill it no matter what you're doing with your body how quickly just like the the inanimate thing can just like die yep yeah it's all about uh, puppetry it's all about focusing your energy into that object all of your energy and uh, yeah that's what i think could really help the audience see this as a living thing it's a beautiful medium. I love it. Yeah, obviously. 
<laughs> yeah. Another thing, another thing that you like that you're a huge nerd for is uh, is space. Oh yes. Tell me, could you fall in love with space through science fiction or on its own? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. I think through science fiction. I've liked science fiction for a long time. Like I grew up watching what well, I consider this science fantasy. I'm getting really nitty gritty. But I grew up watching Star Wars yeah. and, and other shows, um, reading a lot of science fiction. Um, yeah. And then I think when I got older, I started getting interested in physics. I took physics in high school. And now I'm just a very casual science lover. And I look a lot into astrophysics and astrobiology. And I, I just love space. So I'm such a nerd for it. And I do try and this is what we we're talking about, like bringing these sort of genre things to theater. And it's so rare. Sometimes fringe shows kind of go really wacky and we'll do something like hard sci-fi. Yes. Or like a space opera. But it's so rare to see those kind of things on stage. So when they when they do happen and when they're done well, I really love it. Yeah. But I'm always trying to look for space. One of the, sh the shows that I'm writing right now, it's about a, the, the aftermath of the discovery of the proof of extraterrestrial life is discovered. And then these people trying to figure out, oh, what do we do now? Like, what what does the world look like? This was a real thing that happened. It's not a super original idea, but I'm having a lot of fun writing it and, and exploring that lens right now. Mm. And a lot of that is research into kind of for my own sake. Oh, like about the telescopes that would be used and the like at the bottom of the characters is an astronaut on their gateway and just, just all these things. So I just love exploring that world. And I think that it's very, mm. very rich. How excited were you uh, about the James Webb telescope? I've been following that for so long. And when the images started coming, I just was like blown away. I just, yeah. Honestly, every time there's an update from it, I just cheer. I love it so much, especially because like Hubble is still amazing, but there's just, it's so, it's so old now yeah. compared to what the James Webb can do. And some of the things it's doing, it's just opening so many doors in that world. And for example, like being able to possibly discover organic life on very far away exoplanet is something right. that the James Webb can conceivably do if such a yeah. thing does exist. So I, yeah, there's just so many fun frontiers that are being explored right now. I'm, I'm super jazzed about James. <laughs> awesome. That's, I mean, that I remember when it was going up, because I remember when Hubble went up and... Hubble went up and it was broken for the first time. Yes, they had to send up someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had to send up a repairman to fix it. And there was kind of like, so somebody mentioned that as they were like preparing to launch James Webb. And I was like, and they said, if something similar happens with James Webb, we've wasted a billion, billions of yep. dollars because you, you cannot go send up somebody up to do it to fix it. Yeah. So even the deployment, like I was like following along on Twitter just waiting like oh the, the the arms are deploying the the mirrors are coming out and i was like is it gonna work because yes <laughs> if, it doesn't if one little thing didn't deploy properly they'd be yeah. like well it's just a piece of space junk now at a lacrosse point that we're never gonna get to yes yeah i was oh, incredible wow. i mean huge you have to have a lot of confidence but also i can't imagine how tense the uh the ground crew was as that was all happening yeah nasa does some amazing stuff and and the CSA as well, like Canada does have a lot of, like Canadarm on the ISS, but Canada Canada is also going to be involved in the Lunar Gateway that's going up in the next year or so. So right. we are also doing some good things in space. Go Canada. <laughs> yeah. I always remember, because you know, Canada Arm is something that all, every Canadian kid knew. Yeah. But every Canadian yeah. kid knows. It's on the $5. You, that's right. And if you talk to any American and you mention the Canada Arm, there people would be like, the what? Exactly. Like, like such how a... can you not know about this? It's exactly. foundational. They're like, uh, what? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It's just so ridiculous. But, <laughs> but it's something we're very proud of here. As we should. Yes. An engineering feat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, is going up in March. That's right. Um, uh, when do you start rehearsals for that? We start the last week of February. So... I'm going to be finishing up with Fraggle Rock mid-February, and then I will be jumping into rehearsals just a couple weeks after that. We rehearse for a month, and then we are going to be opening at the end 
March. So, and we were talking about this like cycle of theater. And I do feel that right now, Frankenstein's in a good place because I, I did it once in Kamloops. We did a workshop production. So most of the designs are all done. A lot of the and costume pieces are finished. Yeah. There's a few new cast members, unfortunately, just because from the last workshop to this one, people's availability changes. Um, the show, I, I'm glad that I'm going to be able to focus on the show rather than building and designing and, and all these other elements. Whereas, as I said, a lot of the time you're like, oh, we have four weeks to premiere a show from designs, building everything. Actors yeah. rehearsal. The script still has to change. So the script has been in a good place for years. All, a lot of the elements are done or ready. So we can just focus on let's create a show. Let's do the work in the rehearsal room and create something that audiences will enjoy. So yes, it's I, I feel kind of carefree about it. Like there's still more work to be done, obviously, but I feel ready because we've taken years and many different processes and it's been tested in front of audiences and we've had feedback and we've done script workshop and tech workshops. And yeah, like the lighting cues are done basically. Like we've already lit the show and it's going to change because blocking will change and this yeah. and that. But that puts us way ahead once we get into tech week. So Absolutely. yeah, I'm feeling really great going into it. And it's going to be part of in Calgary because Calgary is actually really big in the puppet scene. There's a festival here called the Festival of Animated Objects, and it's all about masks and puppetry. And the show will be part of that this year, which I'm super excited about. So people who love masks and puppets will be able to come and see it. And people who maybe just like Frankenstein or sci-fi or horror thrillers, I hope will also be able to come out and see. Andrew G. Cooper, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much, Phil. This was really lovely. It's been a delight. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me... You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.